for this module, we arrive at our final lifestyle pillar to discuss, and that's substance use disorders. By the end of this module, I hope that you would be able to define and categorize substance use disorders, to identify the importance of substance use disorders, particularly as they impact health, and then explain treatment options for various forms of substance use disorders and understand what your scope of practice might be. In other words, when a referral may be necessary and in the case where you may be able to help, what some possible lifestyle interventions would be for substance use disorders. Now, substance use falls along a spectrum with casual, experimental use. In some cases, it's circumstantial. Let's say you are prescribed an opioid pain medication after a surgery versus experimental drug use. And then that may progress to more intensive drug use. And then as we move closer to addiction, that behavior becomes a compulsion. Motivation increases, and in fact, that motivation gets to what is sort of called a toxic level. That leads to addiction. Now, substance disorder is the term used in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, called the DSM-5. But at its core, at the most extreme, is a progression toward addiction. And addiction, as defined by the American Academy of Addiction Medicine, is a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and the related brain circuitry. And it is reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief by substance use and other behaviors. It is characterized by an inability to consistently abstain an impairment in behavioral control, an increase in craving, a diminished recognition of the significant problems with a person's behaviors, and interpersonal relationships, and then also a dysfunctional emotional response to all of this. And it tends to, much like other chronic diseases, involve cycles of relapse and remission. It is progressive and can result in disability and, in some cases, premature death. Now, there are a lot of assumptions and judgments that surround addiction, such as that the person is just not strong enough or that they lack willpower or moral fortitude. But as you'll see in this module, addiction is complex and there is a physiological process that occurs in the brain circuitry, a change in the brain chemistry that surrounds this addictive process. And you will even see that it's not always specifically related to drugs. There are other things that can produce these same changes in the reward circuitry of the brain. Now, in terms of risk factors for addiction, about 50% of addiction has a genetic component. And that is partly and likely related to the number of dopamine receptors, because as you'll see, that's going to be a prime component of the changes in the brain chemistry that are related to addiction. But there are also differences in age, gender, ethnicity, and comorbid mental illness that may also be contributors. Now, in addition to these genetic factors, some of it is related to environment. In other words, drug availability. 
Some of that may be related to peer pressure, particularly earlier in life. In cases of existing or previous physical or sexual abuse, that tends to be related, and even witnessing violence, perhaps earlier in life. But that key part of age exposure is even more significant with the development of addiction if it happens earlier in life. Earlier a person uses drugs, the more likely addiction will develop. And that is because adolescent brains are still developing, particularly in the part of the brain that is responsible for your executive control, your executive function, decision-making, and judgment. And that is typically what allows us to overcome any urges or motivations related to the reward circuitry. But when that is not significantly developed enough, they may be unable to overcome some of those um, changes in brain chemistry that may lead to addiction. So how might you know as a practitioner, as a professional, that addiction may be existent. Now, in some cases, they may just tell you, I smoke, you know, I smoke a pack a day, things like that. Now, there may be times when you suspect and you're unsure, there may be clues. For example, they may make references to cravings, or they may describe situations or consequences that are relatively serious or that they seem to feel out of control or unable to control their cravings or behaviors. But the American Academy of Addiction Medicine suggests this acronym, A-B-C-D-E, in terms of evaluating or getting a concept of whether addiction may be present. A stands for an inability to consistently abstain. And you saw that in part of the definition that they gave for addiction. And B stands for an impairment in behavioral control. C is craving or an increased hunger or need for either a drug or a rewarding experience that relieves that craving. D is a diminished recognition of how those behaviors may cause significant problems with interpersonal relationships and often there is some sort of dysfunctional emotional response. Now as I mentioned before the diagnosis of substance use disorder is based on that DSM-5. That is the American Psychiatric Association's gold standard text where they list the names, symptoms, and diagnostic features or criteria for every recognized mental illness. And they indicate in that publication that all drugs that are taken in excess have a common direct activation of the brain's reward system or reward pathway. And that's what's involved in reinforcing the behaviors and production of memories that actually lead to addiction. So let's take a look at how all this works in the brain. So as I said, addiction occurs because of an increased activation of the reward pathway. And this may look familiar because some of these parts of the brain we've talked about before in previous modules for other behaviors. But the key thing here is a neurotransmitter we've talked about before as part of the reward circuitry, and that's dopamine. So neurons in the ventral tegmental area release dopamine that interacts with the nucleus accumbens, and that produces a sense of reward or pleasure. And then you get an interaction with other areas of the brain that reinforce this process. For example, 
areas of the hippocampus and amygdala work together to create a memory. And that memory reinforces the feelings, the behaviors, the environment, the situation that was present. And then that then also interacts with the decision-making, the, the prefrontal cortex, the motivation area, the orbitofrontal cortex. And you're going to here then get an increased activity which stimulates your behavioral control. So you get an increased motivation to get that reward back as it wears off, that feeling of pleasure from the dopamine initially. So as that wears off and you want to feel that positive thing again, you're going to seek to redo that behavior that you now remember the details around so that you can have those feelings again. So you're motivated to make choices and seek to complete that circle of reward. Now, unfortunately, addictive drugs tend to perpetuate this cycle because they work a little bit differently than other things that stimulate the brain's reward center. So we have talked about dopamine before. That's part of the brain's reward system. But some of the typical things that produce a feeling of reward, such as eating food or exercise or interacting with friends and family, social gatherings. So those might have a certain amount of dopamine that is released. However, when using addictive drugs, and the one in this example here is cocaine, you not only get an increase in the levels of dopamine, but you also block some of the cell receptors that normally accept dopamine, that they interact with. So this means that you are going to need more dopamine to have the same effect. This leads you to use more of the drug. This is the phenomenon of tolerance. So you're getting a greater production of it here, but fewer places for it to interact with. And so this sort of discrepancy creates that phenomenon of tolerance. You now need more of the drug to have the same effect or an increased effect. And typically when there's an open communication to various parts of the brain, that can give you control or drive and memory. But unfortunately, the way that it happens in a non-addicted brain is more balanced. You're getting this expected communication and feedback between the reward centers and the centers of your brain responsible for control, motivation, and memory. In an addicted brain, the reward, motivation, and memory are reinforced and increased because the dopamine is so high, but you don't get the same communication with those behavioral centers, the control centers of the brain. So you have less control over your behaviors than you do in a non-addicted brain. So what kinds of things do this? Well, there are many classes of drugs that are included in the DSM-5, and they change occasionally as they make revisions. And with the most recent revision, these are some of the major categories. The most common in the US are alcohol and tobacco. But I will also briefly talk about cannabis or marijuana, opioids and stimulants, because they have a role in this country, particularly in the, um, with the exception of caffeine, which is a legal substance, um, in the case of illicit drug use. 
These other ones, it's important to be aware of them, but I am not going to talk about them in this class. What I do want you to realize that regardless of the substance that we're talking about, the DSM-5 has 11 symptoms that are used or criteria that are used to diagnose a substance use disorder. And in these cases, the level of severity of the substance use disorder is determined by the number of symptoms or criteria that are met. So if somebody is at risk, they might have one of those criteria or symptoms. But once they move into two to three symptoms, that is considered a mild substance use disorder. When they have four to five symptoms from that 11 symptom list, they now are in moderate severity of a substance use disorder versus a severe substance use disorder usually has six or more symptoms. And that is often when you can begin to use the term addiction to describe that individual's um, situation. Now, it's not just drugs that can produce that reward pathway that is stimulated and and reciprocated over time. Most recent revision of the DSM-5 now includes some non-substance addictive behaviors. So this is really interesting. In a previous version, they had a separate section that discussed gambling disorder, but they have now moved it into the same section as substance use disorders because it was recognized that some of those same reward pathways that are occurring in a substance use with specific drugs are also happening with this as a behavior. Now, another one that is recognized in some countries, for example, in China, they have labeled internet gaming disorder as an addiction, and they actually have a treatment in place. However, in the US, it is listed in the DSM-5, but it is the caveat is that it's a condition requiring further study. So they have not yet indicated it as an official diagnosis. However, they do recognize it as a developing area of research. They both have information listed. In addition to that, other conditions that the DSM-5 describes as worthy of continued research are sexual addictions called hypersexual disorder, exercise, especially as it relates to eating disorders. And in this case, typically this would mean um, binging and purging as part of maintaining a very low weight. But food or eating actually has some of its own discussion because it's possible it may be related to reward circuitry that is stimulated in the cases of obesity and extreme obesity that some foods may also be stimulating the reward circuitry in the same way that drugs do. So these are something that they are trying to study. And if you have an interest in some of this, some of the articles supporting these as potential addictive behaviors, those um, references are listed here at the bottom of the slide. So let's start going through a couple of the more important ones, particularly in this country. We'll start talking about alcohol. And that's because it is the most widely used substance in the US after caffeine. And what is important to realize about this is it is a matter of quantity. So just a little bit of um, information for you in terms of stats. In 2018, when adults over 18 years old were surveyed, it was reported that at least 86% of those surveyed had had alcohol at some point in their lives. And that 70% had drank alcohol in the past year, 
and 55% had drank alcohol in the past month. But it depends on age group, because I would argue that among those in your own age group, college students, these would likely have a much higher percentage of experience with alcohol and regular alcohol use. Now, in terms of metabolism, it's really important to have an understanding about this both in your personal life and in professional practice because these demographics, this idea of age, this idea of male and female, they can make a difference in terms of how someone adjusts to the amount of alcohol that they have taken in and how that then might determine the symptoms and the level of severity of their condition. So for example, women have less alcohol dehydrogenase. So here's an image that shows you a little bit about the metabolism of alcohol. So alcohol, its chemical name being ethanol, is initially broken down to acetaldehyde, which requires an enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase. And this is the enzyme that women have a little bit less of in their stomach lining. And in fact, part of alcohol is broken down before it even gets absorbed in the intestine by what's called the first pass in the stomach in this case. Now, if you're familiar with drug metabolism, that happens in the liver. And there is a first pass of metabolism of drugs in the liver. In the case of alcohol, the first pass in the stomach occurs because of this enzyme, alcohol dehydrogenase, which means some alcohol doesn't make it into the bloodstream just yet. So in women, because they have less of this, they only metabolize a small amount of alcohol in their stomachs, which means the rest does make it into the bloodstream. In men who have a larger quantity of this enzyme, they then are able to cut down on the alcohol entering their bloodstream because some of it is broken down in the stomach. Now, as a result, on average, women have about twice the effect of alcohol than men because of these differences in the enzymes that are there. And this isn't the only thing that's a little bit different. Alcohol is largely, the concentration of alcohol in the bloodstream is largely dependent on water. And that is because alcohol distributes itself based on the water content of the tissue. It also distributes itself based on the amount of blood flow in that tissue and the tissue mass, especially how much fat content there is versus water content of that tissue. And this we know is different between men and women. Women have a higher percentage of body fat and a lower water content. As a result, they then may experience a higher blood alcohol concentration for the same quantity taken in by a man. However, this becomes equivalent when you um, adjust for the um, body fat and water content of the tissue that we're talking about. Blood flow also makes a difference. And not just that, younger people, and if we go all the way down to infancy, this is where fetal alcohol syndrome becomes an issue. Because in fetal livers, they have not yet um, adequately developed some of the enzymes necessary for metabolizing alcohol. Therefore, the concentration is higher for a longer period of time, therefore affecting the brain. So that's where age can come in. There's even differences in race. For example, Native Americans have an increased elimination of alcohol, and that is 
possibly related to a difference in liver mass in that population as compared to Caucasians or African-Americans. And in those cases, they may react differently to alcohol. It also makes a difference whether the stomach is empty or whether it has something in it. So as the stomach has food in it, that will slow the absorption because of, again, water content. It's going to um, alter how quickly that gets into the bloodstream. Now these differences mean that there are different guidelines for the recommended amount of alcohol in men and women at any given time. So the American Heart Association has recommended that for a woman, only one drink in any single day is recommended. Two drinks for a man. Now, they also recommend if you don't drink, don't start. And that may seem counterintuitive, but more recent evidence that indicates that uh, red wine, for example, can be anti-inflammatory and is common as part of the Mediterranean diet in those countries. You shouldn't start drinking red wine just because you've heard that it can be beneficial for heart disease. You shouldn't start because you think it's therapeutic. However, if you do drink, limit one for women and two for men. Now, I would say that some people might follow this. However, it's good to know what to measure against when this is not followed. It is important to realize that the metabolic capacity, as I just mentioned, can vary by person, from person to person and by various factors. The average metabolic capacity, in other words, how quickly you might break down alcohol, on average, given all those many, many factors that we talked about, is typically about seven grams of alcohol per hour that your body can metabolize, which is equivalent to about a drink per hour. But remember, this varies by a lot of those previous factors, male or female, food in your stomach, water and fat distribution in the tissues themselves. But this can be important, particularly in everyday life and even on a personal level when you are considering the impact of this on driving. So if you decide to have a drink out with somebody or even at dinner, it's really important to consider what time you have that and to wait an hour for that to metabolize so that your blood alcohol level has decreased before you attempt to do anything like driving. But as I said, what about in those cases where it's not one drink for a woman or two drinks for a man in any single day? This is something to be aware of. At-risk drinking does have a definition. And this is from the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. For men, more than four drinks on any one day or more than 14 a week. So if you do have two per day, as the previous guidelines indicated, you are then at 14 per week. However, if on one of those days you do have three, that technically puts you into the category of at-risk drinking because it's more than 14 per week. For women, this would be if you had more than three drinks on any single day and more than seven per week. So let's say you stick with that one drink per week for a woman, but on one day you have two. That would technically put you under this category of at-risk drinking. And the reason that they stipulate this is because, again, research indicates that the more or greater amount of drinking days over time 
the greater the risk to your health, not only for alcoholism and alcohol abuse, but other health and personal problems. For example, one heavy drinking day a month, only one heavy drinking day a month, has been shown to have a one in five increase of alcohol abuse. Let's say it's one heavy drinking day a week. One in three of those people have been diagnosed with an alcohol use disorder. Those who have two or more heavy drinking days a week, usually half of those people who meet that criteria is officially under the criteria of an alcohol use disorder. Now, as if you didn't need another definition, they have also specifically defined what binge drinking is. For a typical adult, those who have five or more drinks in a two hour period who are men would be considered binge drinking. Those who have four or more drinks in a two hour period who are women are considered binge drinking. Now, being able to understand all of these guidelines, whether it just be the recommendations of one for a woman, two for a man in a single day, to at-risk drinking, to binge drinking, means you actually need to know what a standard drink is, right? And that varies by the type of alcohol we're talking about. So this is a really important thing, again, not only for your personal lives, but for your professional lives as well. Because those people who aren't aware of these serving sizes will be potentially at risk of going over the recommendations and not even be aware of it. And much like other serving sizes of foods in this country, sometimes what is presented to us is quite a bit over what the standard serving size is. Think about those restaurants you go to that have these massively big plates. That is way larger than a recommended serving size. The same is true of our alcohol. We tend to fill up a glass that is only meant to be partially full or a much smaller glass used to present a, a drink to an individual. For example, 12 ounces of a regular beer, which is considered about 5% alcohol, is considered one drink. Now, some types of beer have a higher alcohol content. So, for example, if it has about 7% alcohol, you obviously have to reduce that amount. Only about 8 or 9 ounces is considered a single drink if that alcohol content is higher. And this makes sense. You have to decrease the volume as the amount of alcohol goes up. So, when we get to wine, which is typically about 12%, only five ounces is considered a serving size, a single drink. If we go all the way out to hard liquor, this is whiskey, vodka, tequila, rum, only about one and a half ounces, which is close to a typical um, shot glass. And there are different sizes of shot glasses. So that again is just something to be aware of because it is quite possible that if you are just going by the size of the glass, that may not be the correct volume that is a serving size for alcohol. So this is an important thing because one of these per hour on average is all the more that your body can metabolize in order to not make your blood alcohol content go up. Now, research indicates that even a brief questionnaire in an appointment can bring awareness and serve as a starting place for a conversation and maybe even a referral. So research has studied a pretty straightforward questionnaire that can be used in a brief encounter with a patient or client, and it's called the CAGE questionnaire, and that's an acronym for these parts of the questions. 
So the first question then would be, have you ever felt you should cut down on your drinking? And you'll notice these are yes or no questions because they are scored based on they are no, it's a zero, or yes, they are scored with a one. Have people been annoyed? Have they, have they annoyed you or criticized your drinking? Yes or no. Have you ever felt bad or guilty about your drinking? Have you ever had a drink first thing in the morning to steady your nerves or to get rid of a hangover called an eye opener? So these responses to this questionnaire are again scored with a zero if they answer no or a one if they answer yes. So the higher score that they get on these four questions indicates alcohol problems. In fact, two or greater is considered clinically significant and worth further conversation, perhaps even a referral. Now the DSM-5 would then, again, likely if you are working, referring them to someone, somebody would be using the DSM-5, those 11 criteria that I talked about, to categorize them as mild, moderate, or severe in terms of their severity of their alcohol use disorder. So a problematic pattern of alcohol use that leads to clinically significant impairment or distress would require at least two of the following, and they usually would be um, occurring during a 12-month period to be considered as part of the criteria for a diagnosis. The first would be that alcohol is taken in larger amounts over a longer period than was intended. Number two is their persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control alcohol use is a great deal of time spent on activities necessary to obtain alcohol, use alcohol, or recover from its effects? Is there a craving, strong desire, or urge for alcohol? Is the recurrent alcohol use resulting in a failure to fulfill a major role or obligation at work, school, or home, or other parts of an individual's life? Is there continued alcohol use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems that are caused or exacerbated by the effects of alcohol? Are important social, occupational, or recreational activities given up or reduced because of alcohol use? And sometimes that is what is observed by people around them, is the changes in their social, occupational, or recreational activities. Is the recurrent alcohol use in situations in which it could be physically hazardous? Are there injuries? Are there things like drunk driving that are occurring or under the influence? Alcohol use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that's likely to be caused or exacerbated by alcohol. And then finally, we get into alcohol tolerance and withdrawal. So the last two items on that 11 um, item list of criteria or symptoms have to do with tolerance or withdrawal. Alcohol tolerance is defined as a need for markedly increased amounts of alcohol to achieve the desired effect, or that there is a markedly diminished effect if they continue to use the same amount. So remember, this is all related to the brain chemistry. As these things increase the amount of dopamine, they are also simultaneously finding that there is a decrease in the receptors for them, making it necessary to keep increasing the dosage to get the same effect. 
What about withdrawal? The characteristic withdrawal symptom would be present for alcohol if a person is to meet this criteria. Or a person may be observed to use a closely related substance, such as a benzodiazepine, to relieve or avoid the withdrawal symptoms that they are experiencing if they are not using alcohol. So what would withdrawal look like? In order to be able to meet this criteria, you'd kind of have to know what withdrawal syndrome looks like for this. So withdrawal syndrome with alcohol is a cessation of alcohol use that has been heavier prolonged and then finding two or more of the following criteria, usually starting within a few hours to a few days. So they will have some increase in autonomic activity. So sweating, a heart rate, think of like a fight or flight response. Increased hand tremor, they may have trouble sleeping, they may have nausea and vomiting. They may have um, some sensory changes, in other words, some transient visual, tactile, or auditory hallucinations or illusions. They may have altered psychomotor sensation like agitation and perhaps even seizures, and they may experience anxiety. Now this is part of alcohol withdrawal, but these are not the same symptoms as for those um, people who perhaps are intoxicated or drunk at any particular moment. And those are influenced by a lot of those previous factors we talked about with metabolism. So the presence of someone's um, symptoms of intoxication are going to vary based on being male or female, based on whether they have food in their stomach, based on the quantity of alcohol and how long it is between drinks and also that level of tolerance they may or may not have developed over time. But part of, again, the definition from the DSM-5 of alcohol intoxication is that that ingestion of alcohol had to have been recent and that there are clinically problematic behavioral or psychological changes, perhaps inappropriate behavior of a sexual or aggressive nature, um, a very marked moodiness or impaired judgment, and that may develop during or shortly after this alcohol suggestion. And usually in addition to that, there would be one or more of the following signs and symptoms during shortly or shortly after the alcohol use. Slurred speech, um, a decrease in coordination, an unsteady gait, something called nystagmus, which was side to side movements of the eyes, an impairment in attention or memory, or in extreme cases with the blood alcohol level is high, stupor or a coma, in other words, blacking out. And the signs or symptoms of these would have to be determined to not be due to another medical condition. In other words, they couldn't be some other medical disorder or um, disease that could be found through diagnosis or is previously existent in that person's medical record. So, not only is it dangerous to have even a single episode of intoxication, the impact of alcohol long-term on a person's health is very significant. So let's start by looking at the effects of alcohol on the brain. So as I just mentioned, as part of the symptoms of intoxication, you do have impairments in memory and attention, even after only a few drinks. And as alcohol content or concentration in the bloodstream increases, so does the degree of impairment. In fact, as I mentioned before, it is possible to black out, particularly if it's consumed quickly and on an empty stomach, or if that interval of time is pretty short between the number of drinks, and that person may realize at a later point that they can't recall 
key details or entire events that there are things sort of missing from their memory. But in the long run, the brain does suffer significant issues. In fact, there is an entire syndrome that has been described called Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. And there are sort of two parts of it. The initial part is thought to be due to a severe deficiency of thiamine or B1 in the brain. And symptoms of this cause an inflammation in the brain called Wernicke's encephalopathy. You end up with mental confusion and perhaps even paralysis of nerves that move the eyes and difficulty with muscle coordination in general. So very physical, in addition to confusion, some very physical changes to the body. The other part of this is Korsakoff psychosis. This is a chronic and debilitating syndrome characterized by persistent learning and memory problems. They can't remember past events. They struggle with making new memories. And so this can have a large impact on an individual over time in addition to other organs being affected. For example, too much on a single occasion can damage the body. And over long term, you're going to get significant changes to both the heart and liver. In the heart, you can get an um, enlargement of the heart. And in addition to changes in the heart muscle itself, you get stretching and drooping leading to cardiomyopathy. You can also get changes in the heartbeat. It can become irregular and an arrhythmia develop. There's an increased risk of stroke, and you can develop high blood pressure as a result of alcoholism. In the liver, because that is your primary location for metabolism of alcohol, you can develop what's called steatosis, and that is fatty liver syndrome. It is also possible that inflammation could develop in the liver leading to an alcoholic hepatitis. Now you may have heard of hepatitis in another context, which is infectious hepatitis caused by a virus. However, you can also get inflammation from alcoholism. You can get a hardening of the tissue in the liver called fibrosis. And you can also then have that progress into cirrhosis, which can even eventually lead to cancer of the liver or the need for a liver transplant as the liver begins to lose its ability to do those many things that it is responsible for in the body. Those aren't the only organs or body systems that are affected. Drinking a lot over a long time or too much on a single occasion can also damage the pancreas and the immune system. In fact, one of the risk factors for pancreatitis is alcoholism. Pancreatitis can develop even with a single increase in alcohol at a given time. And this is really dangerous because you get the enzymes that are made in the pancreas that are normally responsible for digesting food beginning to digest your own tissues. And this means that you could end up with a very serious emergency in which you are in the hospital and potentially having significant bleeding as your tissue erodes from the enzymes that are activated from pancreatitis. The immune system also is affected. In fact, those who are chronic drinkers are more at risk for pneumonia and tuberculosis. And that may be counterintuitive because those are lung diseases, but the immune system is going throughout the body and responding to antigens. And so even other organs that are being affected may end up with consequences in faraway um, organs. So it just isn't just the liver and pancreas that are affecting things here. In fact, drinking a lot on a single occasion does 
seem to alter your ability to fight off an infection or antigen that you were exposed to in that 24 hours after a single drinking event in which you are considered intoxicated. So that's a significant issue. Now, I mentioned before that liver cancer is a possibility and that is a common um, risk with alcoholism, but those aren't the only parts. The mouth and esophagus that are also being exposed to the alcohol and the throat are also at increased um, incidence in those who are chronic drinkers in addition to the liver. And then another one is breast cancer. Incidence of breast cancer is also higher in chronic, in chronic drinkers who are women. Now, what do we do about this? Now, you may be the one who, again, can do that cage questionnaire, those four simple questions that are like a screening. But it may take a larger referral for significant treatment because there's usually a multi-pronged, multifactorial, multimodal approach to treating any substance abuse disorder, as you'll see throughout this module. It may take an inpatient rehabilitation program that initially starts with a detoxification before even getting into the professional counseling and the behavioral counseling that is needed to overcome an addiction. There are also some people who may try to go about this on their own. There are independent groups and organizations that have been structured around helping people overcome alcoholism, such as Alcoholics Anonymous, Al-Anon or Alateen, the Secular Organization for Sobriety, Smart Recovery, and Women for Sobriety. There are many, many organizations whose primary role is to assist people in overcoming alcoholism. There are also some FDA-approved medications that can be used by prescription to help reduce not only that withdrawal syndrome, but also the potential craving for seeking out alcohol. And here are some examples. There are three. Um, the first one causes unpleasant effects when you do drink. So when you have alcohol, you end up have it's almost like a negative reinforcement. You have nausea, vomiting, flushing, and some other symptoms if you do have alcohol. So what happens here is it's actually affecting the alcohol metabolism. So you get a buildup of one of these things that produces unpleasant effects in the metabolism of alcohol. Um, this other one has... Um, a reduction in the pleasurable effects of alcohol. So that's supposed to help with reducing cravings. And it partly has an effect with the opiate receptors. And then you're also going to have some that work with GABA, which we've talked about previously. And this one reduces unpleasant effects of abstaining from alcohol. And I'm actually not worried so much that you could recite the names of these medications, but just that you have a recognition that there is something out there. Because unless you're a physician, you most likely won't be prescribing these anyway. But I just would like you to have an understanding of the role of FDA-approved prescription medications in helping people overcome addiction to alcohol. Now let's switch gears here a moment and talk a little bit about the other common substance use disorder in the U.S., and that's tobacco. Cigarette smoking is the leading preventable cause of death in the U.S., and you may be like, hold on a minute. I thought heart disease was the leading cause of death. Yes, that is the leading cause of death in terms of diagnosis, but the leading preventable behavior that leads to the cause of death in the U.S. is actually cigarette smoking, because as you'll see, Smoking contributes to four of the top five causes of death 
as they are diagnosed in terms of diseases. Now, approximately 90% of smokers start before the age of 19. And this is kind of key because it can help people to understand this and maybe be a little less discouraged, is the realization that almost everybody takes more than one attempt to quit. And so a realization that it's going to take more than one might help in reducing the discouragement, although it's probably still going to happen, but at least can create some awareness or mindset around the fact that I'm just going to keep trying and one of these times it'll take. Now, while cigarettes contain many chemicals, as we'll talk about here in a moment, nicotine is the one that produces the highly addictive effects of cigarette smoking and other nicotine-containing substances. And that is because you get an adrenaline release as a result of nicotine. So again, we get a little bit of this reward circuitry being activated. Now, that unfortunately is short-lived. And so as that wears off, a person is going to seek to have that experience again. And so it is going to lead to the motivation and behavior of smoking again in order to get that adrenaline release or high again. So some of these other chemicals that contribute to disease risk, in addition to nicotine, that's the addictive part. Some of these other chemicals are what ends up leading to the other health problems related to smoking. And some of these things, knowing what they're in and what they tend to be used for, it's hard to believe that we would knowingly put this in our bodies. But again, the nicotine or addictive property takes over. Even if you know and understand the risks, you may be still a slave to the reward circuitry that is being triggered in the brain. I mean, some of these are used for some pretty awful things. So it's hard to think that we would put some of these things in our body. But these all together are going to lead to the health effects that are so negative from smoking. Now remember there are 11 criteria for diagnosing alcohol use disorder. Well, the same is true for tobacco use disorder. So let's talk about those in terms of the DSM-5. They describe a problematic pattern of tobacco use leading to clinically significant impairment or distress. And again, two of the following occurring within a 12 month period. That tobacco is taken in larger amounts over a longer period than was intended. That there is a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down and control tobacco use. That there is a great deal of time spent on activities necessary to obtain tobacco, use tobacco or recover from its effects that there is a craving or strong desire to use tobacco. That recurrent tobacco use results in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. So in other words, it might be that they are constantly taking smoke breaks and so their efficiency and productivity has gone down. Or that they are leaving the house to smoke outside and leaving children unattended inside, for example. Now, continued tobacco use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems that are caused or exacerbated, exacerbated by the effects of tobacco, like arguments with others about tobacco use. And then important social, occupational, or recreational activities that are given up or reduced because of tobacco use. So let's say somebody... Um, used to be on a bowling league, but now the bowling alley that they go to no longer allows smoking. And so they just no longer participate in that, even though it was something they were highly devoted to and, and really um, enjoyed in the past. 
What about recurrent tobacco use in situations where it's physically hazardous? For example, smoking in places and then falling asleep, you know, increasing the fire risk because of smoking in bed. What about tobacco use continued despite having a persistent or recur recurring physical or psychological problem that is caused or exacerbated by tobacco? You'll see that these are, um, they mirror the criteria for alcohol, just with a specificity to tobacco in this case. So here again, the last two, much like with alcohol, deal with tolerance and withdrawal. Tolerance with tobacco use is again, needing a markedly increased amount of tobacco to achieve that same desired effect, or that you just don't get the effect by continuing to use that same amount, or having for withdrawal a characteristic syndrome or trying to use a closely related substance to relieve or avoid those withdrawal symptoms. Now, what would withdrawal look like? So again, you'll see this criteria has the same framework that we saw with the alcohol use syndrome or alcohol use disorder. Daily use of tobacco for at least several weeks and then an abrupt cessation that leads within that next 24 hours that leads to four or more of the following signs or symptoms. You often experience with withdrawal from tobacco or nicotine an irritability or anxiety, difficulty concentrating, an increased appetite, restlessness, depressed mood, and potentially insomnia. And an interesting point here as it relates to nutrition, one of the things that can sometimes lead people to go back to smoking is that there is sometimes a weight gain related to smoking cessation. Because smoking and nicotine, they decrease your appetite. And so some people may feel as though it's having a negative effect on their weight, and so they go back to smoking as an appetite suppressant. Now the signs and symptoms here in this list that are clinic leading to clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other areas, but are not attributed to another medical condition. In other words, we can't explain it by either another mental disorder, we can't explain them by alcohol or withdraw from something else. That's how we know it's tobacco withdrawal syndrome. So what are the effects of smoking on the body? Well, remember I said that heart disease is that number one cause of death? Well, smoking increases the risk for coronary artery disease by two to four times. It also increases the risk of stroke by two to four times. And stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the US. And then you also are at a 25 times increased risk for lung cancer with smoking. And lung cancer is just one of many cancers of which cancer itself, of all cancers, is the number two cause of death. Now, this is in addition to the obvious impact on the lungs themselves, and chronic lower respiratory disease is the fourth leading cause of death. So stroke, you also get changes to the eyes. You can get changes to the teeth and gums as a result of smoking, in addition to those increased risk of acute infections, not just chronic infections and chronic pulmonary disease, like asthma, emphysema, chronic bronchitis, you're also at increased risk of diabetes. There are bone changes as a result of smoking. 
and women tend to have some issues with reproductive health. Not only ectopic pregnancies are increased in risk, but there is also a redu reduction in fertility. There is a decrease in male sexual function as a result of smoking, in addition to, as I mentioned before, changes to immune function. So the book does talk more significantly about how smoking affects the various body systems. But let's go a little bit further into the biggest contributor to heart disease which here again is smoking. So what happens at a microscopic physiological level is you're getting direct damage to the blood vessels. So as a result of smoking, and there's a, a really great photo in the next slide here, is you're going to get to an increased amount of inflammation in the blood vessel that contributes to the pathologic process of atherosclerosis. And atherosclerosis is the formation of this blockage in the blood vessel, which narrows the width of the vessel and may completely occlude it at some point, which then and of itself creates a heart attack or a ischemic stroke. When you have a blockage of the vessel in the brain, that would be a stroke. The blockage of the vessel in the heart would be a heart attack. So let's look more closely at what's actually happening as a result of inflammation and atherosclerosis in the blood vessels. So smoking itself is going to cause changes in the endothelial cells and then the white blood cells that are circulating in the bloodstream. So what happens is you get dysfunction and activation of those endothelial cells. Endothelial cells line the inside of your blood vessels and they're a really important part of maintaining the health of your blood vessels. They are part of the gatekeepers that let things in and out of the tissue beyond the blood vessels. If you have endothelial cell death, you will also then have an activation of the immune system. You get infiltration and inflammation from white blood cells in the immune system. You will also get changes to platelets. Platelets may adhere to the inside of the blood vessel lining in the endothelial cells. And then you can get further inflammation and perhaps even bleeding or a clot forming. And that clot called a thrombus, then if this is the lumen in this space here, then as that um, area of the blood vessel is continued to be damaged, it actually sort of grows. You get infiltration of other cells that come to the area thinking they're trying to repair this damage. And as a result, you get this atherosclerotic plaque that forms and is now partially blocking the blood flow through this blood vessel. In the end, as that continues, you get less blood supply to the tissue in that area. And when it is completely blocked, that is what then leads to a heart attack or in the brain when the blockage is there, a stroke. Now you said, or you could see that the other part of the body that's obviously affected is the lungs themselves. Now I won't go into a ton of detail here because a larger discussion of emphysema and chronic bronchitis, in addition to asthma, is kind of beyond the scope of this class as it gets into pathophysiology. But we know that there is significant damage to the airways and the alveoli in the lungs. In fact, you actually get a change in the type of cells that are present. So you have these ciliated cells that line your trachea, and they help kind of move things back up so that you're not getting 
um, contaminants into the lungs. Well, they get damaged with smoke and are replaced by a non-ciliated cell. That means you are, over time, going to get more and more contaminants into the lungs to the point that you actually get that collection of tar and other chemicals lining the inside of the alveoli. And over time, this damage from all those chemicals contained in cigarettes and in smoke are going to lead to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is an umbrella term for emphysema, which is where the alveoli walls break down and you get these open pockets in the lungs, or chronic bronchitis, which is where you get inflammation in the bronchi, those tubes that feed the alveoli. It can also trigger asthma attacks and make existing asthma attacks worse. And this is true for both the individual who is smoking or anyone that they live with who may be asthmatic. So for secondhand smoke, you can get an increase in asthma as well for those who are living within the same household. Now we mentioned before that lung cancer is a significant risk, 25 times increased if you are a smoker. But that's not the only organ system that is related to an increased risk of cancer with smoking. In fact, bladder cancer is huge in smokers. In fact, 50% of all bladder cancers are in smokers. You also have an increased risk of acute myeloid, myeloid leukemia, cervical cancer, colon and rectal cancer, esophageal and these should make sense to you, esophageal, tracheal, bronchi, and obviously lung cancer because those are the tissues coming in direct contact with the smoke. But the kidney and ureter, the larynx, again, all related. Liver cancer is increased in smokers. And any part of the mouth, throat, tongue, soft palate, and tonsils are also increased. Pancreas and stomach cancer are also increased in smokers. So Again, this is way beyond just the heart and lungs. You're getting every organ system somehow affected by smoking. And it's not just smokers themselves. As I said, those around them are at increased risk of poor health because of smoking. Non-smokers who are exposed to secondhand smoke, they have an increase in their own heart disease risk by 25 to 30%. And that's without them themselves being smokers. In fact, it's estimated that secondhand smoke exposure caused nearly 34,000 heart disease deaths between the years of 2005 and 2009. So those were non-smokers in the US. And stroke also plays, or I'm sorry, secondhand smoke also plays a role in stroke. So there are some individuals for whom they hadn't previously been noted as having heart disease or stroke risk, but upon investigation that they were living with a smoker, that was a key element. So smoking, quitting smoking helps both the individual smoker and those in their immediate environment. In fact, the risk for heart attack drops sharply in a year. And even in the immediate time right after smoking, you begin to get changes and recovery of lung tissue, even in that very short period of time right after stopping smoking. After two to five years, the chance of a stroke goes back to about what it was for people who were not smokers. Within five years of quitting, the chance of cancer of the mouth, throat, esophagus, and bladder is cut in half. And other conditions, including ulcers, 
peripheral artery disease, and cancers of the larynx, lung, and cervix, those are also reduced after quitting. Now, how do you help individuals who are ready to quit? Well, in the beginning, if somebody is truly ready, a self-directed program may be what they need. It's possible they may need social support. Many individuals that have the greatest success also supplement with some sort of nicotine replacement or medication. It can start, and here's where you can come in. A simple conversation that just assesses readiness and is open in a non-judgmental way to a discussion. This is where using that coach approach, curiosity, openness, appreciation, compassion, and honesty. It is true, however, even if a person is ready, as I said, it usually takes more than one try for somebody to successfully quit smoking. That addictive property of nicotine is huge. And it usually requires both intensive behavioral support and some sort of pharmacological treatment. And that could involve either nicotine replacement therapy, and I'll talk briefly about those, or a prescription medication that helps reduce cravings and help with some of those withdrawal symptoms. So we'll briefly talk about each of these. Let's start by talking about nicotine replacement. Now nicotine replacement can be found over the counter in the form of a patch, a gum, or a lozenge. And even the patch is available typically in a 12-hour or 24-hour release form formulation. But there are a few side effects related to the patch. There can be some skin irritation, redness or itching at that site, some dizziness or racing heartbeat. Some of these are more prominent with the 24-hour patch versus the 12. Sleep problems or unusual dreams, headache, nausea, and even muscle aches and stiffness, particularly in the area where that patch is located. In the case of, of nicotine replacement gum, this can cause bad taste in the mouth, mouth sores and throat irritation, even hiccups and nausea or jaw discomfort, partly just from the chewing, and then a racing heartbeat and nausea. Oh, sorry, that's on there twice. Um, but these, even with the side effects, they have been shown to be a critical part of a smoking cessation plan because what these will do will be to reduce that desire or craving without having the negative effects of the smoke itself with all those other chemicals in it. Now, in some cases, a prescription can be given for an inhaler or nasal spray, which I don't really talk about as part of this class, but just so that you know that those are options um, with a prescription. Also by prescription are some FDA approved medications. And some of these you may have seen advertised or heard of before. Chantix, which is the brand name for Varenicline, which is an oral drug. And it, what it does is it competes with nicotine from cigarettes for binding with those receptors in the brain. What it's going to do is block that stimulation by nicotine. So you won't experience the full effect of smoking while taking this. Um, another one you may have heard of is Zyban, also uh, marketed under the name Wellbutrin as an antidepressant. It is an oral drug. Its um, generic name is bupropion. And 
The exact mechanism of this one is not entirely understood. However, it has been shown to decrease cravings and withdrawal symptoms. So it could be a valuable component of a smoking cessation program as well. But in both of these cases, it's important that they be carefully, the individuals be carefully monitored by a doctor because there are some significant side effects in some individuals taking these um, prescription medications. Now there are also things that people could do that are counseling and behavioral related. That's going to be another component that's going to be critical in addition to a nicotine replacement or medication to support smoking cessation. And there are some even that are free services. For example, smokefree.gov is a texting program that anybody can sign up for who are trying to quit smoking and you it, it works for people who are on the go and you can communicate with individuals and even receive regular prompts. Um, and also having role models and social support. There are even information um, with real stories, people who have recovered with information and recommendations that are available online, freely available and can be recommended to people who are considering quitting but maybe not really sure yet how to approach it. For those who want um, support that might be available no matter where they live and without maybe restrictions of an individual appointment with somebody. There are also um, telephone lines you can call. There are free smoking programs through the American Lung Association, the American Cancer Society. There are many different organizations, much like there are with alcoholism, that are out there to help individuals who are ready to quit. But again, behavioral support is key, especially to remind people that it can take more than once. And you can even reframe this as keep keep trying. You'll be successful in these times. That So reframe it as persistence rather than looking at it as failure. Another one to discuss briefly here is cannabis or marijuana. Um, and this is because it is the most common illicit drug used in the US. Now I say illicit drug, but it is legal in some states and it produces a subjective high. So there are some things that people will take it for because they feel it increases the taste of food or the smells of food, they enjoy food more. It creates distortions in time and space. They have changes in sensory perception. They might even say that colors are more vivid or they enjoy music so much more or certain things just are more entertaining or comedic when they are using this drug. But it can develop into a use disorder and even has a state of intoxication associated with it. Now, even though it is different than tobacco smoke, there are carcinogens in all smoke. So there are health risks associated with regular significant use of cannabis. At the same time, medical marijuana has been approved to treat nausea and vomiting and appetite changes related to cancer treatment or chemotherapy. And it has also been approved for certain medical conditions such as pain relief and other chronic diseases. But chronic uncontrolled use can affect physical health. In fact, in those cases, there is an increased risk of heart attack. You can have some changes to vision as it expands blood vessels in the eyes. You can get an increase in heart rate and in some cases blood pressure, although in the immediate aftermath, some people believe that there is a decrease in blood pressure in addition to a relaxation of breathing passages. For, so for some people, they may use it for that, which they might consider as a positive benefit of using it. But at the same time, again, chronic 
uncontrolled use can lead to breathing problems. For example, increasing your risk of lung infection, an irritation of the lung, an increase in coughing. There are short and long-term effects on the brain to include impaired body movements. And again, critical in the, the age that the person is using it. It's another reason that early exposure in life can bring negative consequences because this can affect child development. So um, avoiding the use of marijuana early in life is a critical part, not only of keeping it from becoming a regular habit, but also to protect the brain's development during that critical time. And that is also because there are some connections to mental health related to the use of marijuana. Altered senses and sense of time. Again, sometimes that's what people take it for or the euphoria that it can provide. But there can be some changes in mood and anxiety, depression, perhaps in the long run, difficulty thinking and problem solving, certainly at that time, um, or with more heavy use, impaired memory over the long term, and even in young people, potentially suicidal thoughts and a reduced life satisfaction. In higher doses, you have some significant mental health issues like delusions, hallucinations, and even psychosis. Another one that has become more of an issue in the United States, more recent development as an overuse is opioids. In fact, it's been called an epidemic in the U.S. with more than 100 deaths per day from overdoses of opioid use. Now, opioids have their place. They are an important part of pain control in the medical community. However, when they are abused or overused, they can cause drowsiness, confusion, euphoria, nausea, constipation, and what can lead to death is respiratory depression. And some of these you've heard of before. Morphine, heroin, and then prescription drugs like fentanyl, codeine, oxycodone. In fact, many emergency um, professionals, EMTs, paramedics, and healthcare professionals keep naloxone or Narcan um, on hand to deal with overdoses. And that can reverse the respiratory depression because it combines or antagonizes the opioid receptor. So those opioid receptors that are being overwhelmed with the opiate that the person has taken, you can competitively bind those opiate receptors with Narcan in order to reverse the binding of the overdosed drug. So this can be a critical component to have on hands, have on hand in cases where a family member you know is likely using or in emergency workers who may be arriving at a scene in which an overdose is a possibility. Now these, both uh, marijuana and opioids, these can require a more intensive rehab along with stimulants. So this is another one I do want to talk about, but again, only briefly, because typically these are going to be out of your purview. Um, you can tend to have conversations about smoking or alcohol use, um, and those in serious cases may require referral, but for the most part, these, these last three we've talked about here are going to require a greater referral unless you go into mental health counseling. Um, that is part of addictive services. Stimulants are used to increase alertness energy, and the reason I bring these up is because while the illicit drugs, amphetamines, methamphetamines, and cocaine are the ones that you could see um, in individuals, 
There's also one under here that is the most common stimulant used in the U.S. today, and that's caffeine. That falls under this category, and it is not considered an illicit drug. It is a legal drug. In fact, we probably all have one or more of these every day, whether in the form of coffee or tea or an energy drink. And so this is where it's important to recognize that there, there are, there's a whole spectrum of use disorders here. And even something you may not feel is affecting you in a negative way could actually have negative ramifications. For example, in the most recent revision of the DSM-5, they added caffeine withdrawal syndrome to the list of substance use disorders. And that is because within about, after about 24 hours from the last dose of caffeine, people may begin to experience a withdrawal syndrome that parallels some of the withdrawal syndromes you see in other substance use disorders we've talked about. And that is because, as we talked about in the sleep module, caffeine blocks adenosine receptors. And adenosine was that thing that accumulates when you use ATP for energy, and it's part of the homeostatic sleep cycle. So by blocking adenosine, you don't get the feeling of tiredness. You get the opposite effect, this feeling of adrenaline, an adrenaline-like response. And so without that, a lot of people experience irritability, difficulty thinking. So there's a specific withdrawal syndrome with caffeine leading to its inclusion in the most recent revision of the DSM-5. Now, another interesting point of research is that there are also other things currently being investigated as having addictive properties that, again, are not what you typically think of as a substance or drug. And that's because they have found through imaging of the brain that even things like sex, food, nature, certain activities like sports, music, creative arts, these can have a similar impact on the reward center of the brain. In fact, functional MRI imaging indicates that these other um, substances can trigger that same reward pathway. And you'll see the connection here between these substances and some of our previous modules. Sugar and sugar substitutes, like um, artificial sweeteners, have been found to stimulate the reward pathway in addition to salt and fat. So this could be a connection even to obesity as individuals are actually addicted to certain substances that they continue to take to get that feeling of pleasure. That feeling of pleasure coming from sugar and fat as opposed to a drug. Or social media, which I mentioned already in terms of internet gaming as something being investigated. But there have been studies indicating that there is a, a imaging in the brain mimicking addiction when people get a like on Facebook or they get a heart on Instagram or they get they're constantly checking email or looking to see if somebody has liked their most recent social media post. So there is this addictive pull, even with things like social media behaviors. And something we kind of already knew because we talked about dopamine being released with exercise, but that a, and perhaps this could be a positive one, is that perhaps somebody could learn to substitute, that you can still get a reward um, being triggered with something like exercise as opposed to social media or as opposed to taking in a sugar dessert. 
um, that you could perhaps interact with some of these other lifestyle areas and manipulate the reward system a little bit. So again, these require further research, but I just want to bring your awareness to these because they may follow a simil similar structure in terms of the neurobiology that's happening in the brain. So all this being said, how do you fit into this? What's your role? You may feel a little out of sorts counseling patients or clients with addiction, but you may be just the first part of a conversation. It is really important to re recognize your own limitations if something is outside of your scope of practice, but it is equally as important as a professional responsibility not to ignore the things that you may be presented with when somebody needs help that's beyond your wheelhouse. So if you go into PT, for example, and you're kind of getting the impression there's something else going on. You don't want to just brush it aside, but you can have a conversation and it may end in a referral that at least allows you to help that individual move farther along, even if it's not with you to address that issue. So some tools that you may need to brush up on that we've actually already talked about in this class is the trans theoretical model, specifically the stages of change and that motivational interviewing the skills that are necessary to have that kind of conversation that will move somebody forward in a decision-making process. And taking a coach approach, all of these with the understanding that you must consider your scope of practice and perhaps make a referral when necessary. So let's look at each of these just briefly again, even though we've already talked about them, because both the TTM and the, the MI skills were initially developed in addictive populations. For example, the stages of change and motivational interviewing were both developed with smoking and alcoholism, and so they make perfect sense to be used here. It is really important to remember with the trans-theoretical model that not everybody is ready to change. Those people who are in pre-contemplation or contemplation, they are not ready. So you do not want to give them recommendations, make the referral. You do not want to tell them what to do or to have them feel judged. In fact, one of the most surprising things to them is when somebody says, I know you're not ready to change and that's okay. That can be freeing. That can allow somebody to begin to think about it because they don't feel pressure. They don't feel judged. Just the recognition that they haven't really considered it. They haven't decided yet. That can be really important. It's not till you get further along into prep, con contemplation, preparation, action that you really get into the nitty gritty of how to go about it. Initially, you're just going to discuss motivation. So this is why you first have to assess readiness because the types of things you talk about with that person is going to depend on what stage they're in. If they are just considering or even not yet considering a change, your role might be to raise their consciousness about it. Have them consider how this affects their environment. Have them consider the emotions related to this and acknowledge that it's okay, that they're not ready but that there are supports available when they are ready. So this is where motivational interviewing comes in. Your role then might be in a conversation to develop their motivation or at least get them thinking, increase their awareness. That's what consciousness raising is to begin with. But that requires that you actively practice and remember some of those motivational interviewing skills like ORs, making sure you're using open-ended questions that you're affirming and 
recognizing where they're at, meet them where they are, and listen, reflect back. I understand that this is a tough conversation and that's okay. And I understand you're not ready and that's okay too. But when you are ready, I might have some resources and you never know, two, four, six weeks later, they may come back and have thought about it a little bit. And it can help again to just sort of summarize where they're at, where you're at, your, your offer of support when they're ready. Because as people move along in the stages of change, you can then begin to use these other things that will help move them forward. So people struggling with addiction, they fully expect to be judged. They may be defensive. They may even be belligerent about change because that's the experience they've had before. People don't always accept them where they are. And instead, they are telling them, hey, you should really stop smoking. Or do you have any idea what that's doing to your body right now? or it's really affecting everybody else, it becomes something that they are defensive about. So having a coach approach that uses empathy becomes really key with helping people move forward. Explore, what is it that they feel might be contributing to this? Be open to listening to their response and not having any assumptions about what led them to this, whether it be the use of alcohol or smoking or something more serious like an opioid addiction. Having an appreciation for the positive in those cases, particularly going back to those MI skills, if they mention something that sounds like change talk, remember we talked about change talk in a previous module, latching onto that and reflecting it back so that they hear it again and realize, oh yeah, you're right. I really do need to do this for my kids who have asthma, something like that. Reflecting it back. And then showing compassion and honesty. This isn't easy, that it can take more than one try. And that's okay, because that's to be expected. So again, that compassion, empathy can really be important in people dealing with substance use. And then aligning their motivation, help walking them through that. And this is the same structure we've talked about previously, because non-judgmental empathy could be the key to helping them feel like it's okay for them to be where they are and open up conversation to moving forward. Because there are certain things that are known to positively impact motivation versus negatively impact motivation. For example, if they feel acknowledged, understood, and accepted just as they are, and that they can get information without it being pushed on them. That when they are ready for information, they have options. It's not just what worked for this person or what worked for you. That it's leaving the options open for them to choose. So they have control and they have choice because those reasons need to make sense for them individually. And that, that they have a sense of competence about moving forward. And that may be a role you can play as well, providing information so that they feel competent, that they have enough information to make the decision for themselves. And then positive feedback. You've noticed a, a common theme underlying a lot of what we've been talking about lately, lately is positivity. Because what can really negatively impact their motivation is if they feel judged, misunderstood. You couldn't possibly know what I'm going through, they may think. You can't, you're just judging me. You have no idea how hard this is. Or if they feel other people pushing them, that's going to make them close up. If they feel as though they only have one option, they may not even want to discuss it because that makes them feel that like they're not in control. The decision has been made for them. And that those decisions they make make sense to them for the reasons that they believe in that motivate them. And then not believing 
So you have to believe that they can move forward and show that. This is where affirming any progress, being positive. Because getting yelled at that they're not making progress or doing something wrong or that they should do this and should do that, that's just going to lead things to shut down. So as we've been talking about a lot lately, a foundation of positivity can be important. So here are five reasons for positive communication, which is important in life at any time, both personally and professionally, but can be particularly important in the case where someone is dealing with a substance use disorder. So a communication style or system that frequently breaks down into negativity and attack or silence, that's only going to make things worse. So positive communication as an alternative is really where you want to be, particularly because it can snowball. In the same way that negativity snowballs, positivity can snowball as well. It can be contagious. In fact, the other person will listen better, understand more, and be able to respond less defensively from a more thoughtful and collaborative position if you can frame things in a positive way. It may help you or your loved one reinforce positive change. And just as a reminder, this doesn't only have to be used in a professional interaction. This is really great in your personal lives, at work, at home, and any relationship. It can be a good foundation for building a relationship that is personal or professional. So there are seven elements of positive communication just to keep in mind. As though we didn't already have some good ideas, these are some other great ones to, to keep in mind. Try to consider your word choice, your tone, and how you frame a question or a response. So instead of saying, yeah, that's not true when somebody says something, or that's a bunch of BS, you could say, here's how, this, here's how that looks to me. And so it's, it's less about calling them out, but about how you are seeing it. And being brief can often get you further, but be specific. You know, I loved it when you mentioned that you're struggling with this because that shows me you're creating awareness and labeling your feelings and kind of tags off of what we've been talking about in the past module about gratitude. I am so thankful when you come in showing that you've thought about this in between our conversations. Offering an understanding statement. You know, I, I could see how you would perceive that in that way. Show understanding. And in some cases, and this probably deals more with when you're using it in a personal context, is accepting responsibility. So if this is in a relationship, um, a spouse or a girlfriend or a close friend, being able to accept responsibility and say, well, I know sometimes I overreact and I apologize for that. And then you can use some of the other ones. But here's, here's how it looks to me. And again, just the tone and word choice can make such a difference. And offering, being humble. How, how can we change this? What would you do to change this? How can I help? So you can see how this positive communication, framing, word choice, tone can really make a difference in the reactivity of the other party. Now, all of this being said, I've thrown a lot, out you, a lot at you today, both in the types of substance use disorders that are out there and most common and what your role might be in that. But the thing I want to come back to here before leaving this module is a recognition that you do play a role. You don't want to shy away from a patient or client who is dealing with something or you might suspect is dealing with something because you might be that critical key to getting them down a different path. But 
if you have not had adequate training to work with someone suffering from addiction, start the conversation and at least sort of assess where they are at. Use a coach approach to help them feel understood, not judged, and that it's okay for them to be at whatever stage they are because, I mean, it's a process. Not everybody is ready at a given moment that you might be talking to them. However, that when they're ready, you have resources you can provide. Or if they're curious and want to look at some things on their own time outside of an appointment, that you could provide them with information. Phone numbers, internet sites, things that they might be able to look at for information when they feel ready to digest it on their own time. But that when they're ready, you need to probably have something ready, which means if you're working in a clinic or hospital setting, you might need to know if there are in-house resources available. For example, is there someone you can refer to within your own facility? Is there an addiction support? Is there a, a department that deals with it completely? Maybe there are addiction programs available at your own facility that you could refer them directly to and still be within that same building, for example. Or are there things you can share that they can look at later on or help make contact in the community if you don't have something within your facility. And then in the case where maybe you're an independent practitioner or there's nothing available right where you are, you may need to investigate and create a list of mental health professionals or addiction programs in your community and reach out to them ahead of time and confirm that they are willing to accept a referral because then you could likely have a list and say, well, this person might be a good fit for you. They tend to work with others who are struggling with alcohol in their lives. And so then you might be able to know by name, this is Dr. So-and-so, and then that would be then a name, number, contact that you could provide. And sometimes even doing it with a person in an appointment can be helpful. Do you have any interest in us calling them together right now? And we could talk to them about an appointment or a consultation. And so that then, again, helps that social support that they may need in that moment. But regardless of which direction that needs to take because of where you are and what kind of resources are available, provide that information and follow up. Don't just say, oh, I did my due diligence, I'm done can really help with that social support to reach out and ask permission to. Do you mind if I follow up with you in a couple weeks just to see how it's going with the next step or see if you have any questions? It can make them feel not alone and that can be a really important thing to helping them move forward. So some things to consider here. As I said, I know it's a lot of information and it may be something that you feel a little bit uncomfortable with in terms of of counseling or working with someone, but it's important to have a foundation on which you can at least evaluate someone and then make a referral because you may be that key first step to helping them be able to make a change. So I hope that you thoughtfully consider some of this information as something to have on the back burner and even investigate so that you have resources available to provide because it could be a really important thing to have on the back burner someday unexpectedly as you realize the need for it when you encounter a patient, client, or even a family member.